Now you might turn back to Proverbs and I'll lead us in prayer. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, recently Paul Dolan from the London School of Economics released a book, Happy Ever After. And this behavioural scientist claimed the data proved unmarried women are notably happier than married women. Uh, He suggested men do okay out of marriage, but according to the self-reports, he said, of married women, when their spouse is out of the room, they're not so happy as the single and childless ones. Well, amazingly, it was quickly proved that Dolan and his book had completely misunderstood one of the key data sets that he relied on for his claim uh, from the American Time Use Survey. Because actually, the lower happiness rating was not comparing a spouse uh, reporting, uh, reporting with your spouse out of the room to when she was in the room, but it was reporting for when your spouse was away long term, for example, on military service. And of course, you might be unhappy then. In fact, properly understood, the survey showed both married men and women reported slightly higher levels of happiness than those who'd either never married or are no longer married, but it was barely a significant difference, not conclusive. And as others point out, happiness rarely works well as a goal anyway for your life directions because happiness tends to emerge more as a byproduct of other goals and decisions. Certainly, as Christians, we should be wary of decisions based simply on how I feel, what makes me fulfilled. And we could also note that Jesus was the most complete person who ever lived and he was single and celibate. And it's faithfulness to Jesus that matters far more than happiness. So, from our series on Proverbs, we've begun to see that it's wisdom and fear of the Lord that is a better guide and goal for life. So what does Proverbs wisdom has to say about today's topic, marriage? Now, it doesn't say everything. I don't go into the New Testament passage we had today, but here are five Proverbs on marriage. And my, I've done it again. I practised beforehand and the funny, I had a, sorry, it's just a technology mystery. Uh, It was nice and black and blue. Oh, You'll just have to listen to me now, won't you? Uh, My first proverb for marriage says, sexual and spiritual fidelity goes together. And our fidelity, of course, means faithfulness. And this point is saying we should be faithful to our spouse and faithful to God. Would you come with me to Proverbs 2 and verses 16 and 17? Uh, It says, uh, wisdom will save you also from the adulterous woman and from the wayward woman with her seductive words who has left the partner of her youth and ignored the covenant she made before God. These verses introduce the wayward woman. Uh, She's a contrast to woman wisdom and the contrast runs all the way to chapter 9 and it says wisdom should help you avoid the waywardness here of sexual immorality, infidelity. But it's verse 17 I want you to notice because it adds something important. 
On the one hand, it's saying adultery, sex outside of marriage, breaks your commitment to your marriage partner. But verse 17 also says it ignores your covenant before God. Uh, A covenant is a legal agreement between two parties where you each make public promises to each other. And the Bible refers to marriage as a covenant between a man and a woman. That's why we have public wedding ceremonies. The vows the couples make uh, put the terms of the marriage covenant public to everyone and not just them. Marriage is not just private promises made up by two people, you know, alone on a desert island. But the Bible also calls our relationship to God a covenant. And in that covenant, he promises to be our God and says we will be his people. He blesses us and we're to trust his ways. And so breaking your marriage covenant or the covenant of marriage that another person's made by sexual infidelity, well, that also breaks the believer's covenant with God. On the other hand, spiritual faithfulness normally strengthens your marriage. Uh, Peter says, be considerate to your wife and let nothing hinder your prayers. So as I said, Proverbs presents two opposite women, wisdom and wayward folly. And these two ideas stand for two ways of life, to the true God or to false idols. And I think sex is one of the great idols of our age because our society just can't cope with the idea that, well, a person could be sexually inactive and yet satisfied. Oh, must be missing out. Um, you, you, You identify by your sexuality these days. But sex doesn't complete you. Uh, marriage doesn't complete you. Only Christ completes you. In fact, Bible readers know that the marriage covenant points to Christ's far greater covenant love for his church. So that's a foundation. And on that foundation, the second proverb says, sex in marriage is really great. Here we go to the passage today, Proverbs 5 and verse 18. May your fountain be blessed and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. And if you run your eyes over from verses 15 to 18, you see this slightly strange language of fountains and streams and running waters and the poetry experts say it's actually imagery for sexual intimacy, indeed for orgasm. The Bible is unashamed about the potential of sex for delight with your wife. Verse 19 talks openly about the enjoyment a man finds in his wife's breasts. Even uses the language of intoxication and equal opportunity. Song of Songs, verses, chapter 1, verse 2, the wife also says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth for your love is more delightful than wine. I'm glad people like Greg and Amelia Clark and Patricia Werrickoon have written books that speak to Christians in open and unembarrassed and godly tones about sex. And if you're interested, you can look up their books on the Matthias Media and CEP websites. Because some people think Christians are down on sex. And of course, chapter 5 is full of warnings against sex outside of marriage because it robs either a current or a future spouse. It can cause jealousy or financial pain can wear you out and risks ill health but verses 20 
onwards at the end of the chapter says the most basic reason for avoiding adultery is that it dishonours God. Why my son be intoxicated with another man's wife? Why embrace the bosom of a wayward woman? For your ways are in full view of the Lord and he examines all your paths. The evil deeds of the wicked ensnare them. The cords of their sins hold them fast. For lack of discipline they will die, led astray by their own great folly. It is so good in the baptism service when we stand and say the creed and say, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Because regardless of what it is, all of us have things like that that we are going to have to give an account to God for. It's great to proclaim forgiveness in Christ. But coming back to chapter 5, it says sex in marriage is great. We know it's for making babies, but here it's just praise for its own powerful joy. Believers know that God is the genius who thought it up. John Dixon famously asked if you treat sex more like a Porsche or a Datsun. Um, a Datsun was everyone's cheapy first car back when uh, I was a teenager. If you had an old Datsun, there's a 120Y. What a beast. Uh, you didn't mind if it got a few dings, uh, the back seat filled up with Coke cans and Macca's wrappers. You'd lend it out to your mates, they'd fang it around and... Uh, get a bit of damage, no worries, easy come, easy go, hopefully soon you can afford something better and move on. With a Datsun, it's casual. But if you own a Porsche, well, you'll garage it and service it properly. You don't treat it rough, you don't lend it out to your mates. Well, why not? Because it's precious and powerful. And if you use it wrongly, it can do big damage. But in the right context, used lawfully with respect for its value, you'll enjoy driving it so much because of its great power. And God's word says that sex is powerful. It's a precious gift from him, so don't treat it casually. We believe he designed it to be a great servant of marriage. Well, my next two proverbs uh, focus on two things that can undermine marriage. And the first, I'm strapping myself in, it's the quarrelsome wife. Proverbs 27 and verse 15. Oh, dearie me. Cold fingers make turning pages hard. A quarrelsome wife is like the dripping of a leaky roof in a rainstorm. Uh, It wouldn't be politically correct to talk about a nagging wife, would it? does sound like a stereotype but when I did a word search quarrelsome is the proverbs most common adjective to describe a wife clearly suggesting it can be a problem at times well what would it be getting at the idea of dripping water here is not one huge thing you know it's not a lightning strike like adultery It's constant low-level irritation that wears you down, makes you feel down, depressed, like like a miserable week. It just won't stop raining. Men find a steady flow of criticism deeply discouraging. When you feel like you can just never get it right, it it steals your energy for a relationship. Now, I I guess people feel that nagging sometimes gets something done for you, otherwise we wouldn't do it, but it almost never improves the relationship. My dad was a smelly pipe smoker. 
Uh, Mum nagged him for years to quit. But he already knew it was bad for his health. He was a pharmacist. He only decided to give up once Mum gave up on nagging him. And other proverbs say it's better to live on the corner of your roof or even out in the desert than to share a house with a quarrelsome wife. Just think about that. It's saying it feels better to endure storms or desert heat than be exposed to constant complaints. Indeed, it's really saying singleness is better than constant quarrels. A warning that no one should marry in haste. Now, by the way, to be fair, Proverbs many times warns men against anger or being quarrelsome. Men, don't you be quick to fire up in anger, fire words back, be patient and slow to answer back. Women should avoid a man who's always looking for a fight. And no proverb ever tells a husband to try and control his wife, let alone to discipline her if he finds her words unpleasant. I cannot believe I have to say this, but I have sometimes heard men speak in those ways. Such forcefulness is always unacceptable. But if you are a wife and find any echo of this behaviour pattern as you look in the mirror, well, I guess it's just worth reflecting on. I know men can be very disappointing. And clearly couples need to discuss hard topics. But giving in to the temptation to, to nag, to, to, to criticise, will, will only undermine a relationship. It squashes warmth and it tempts the man to just quietly give up. Well... On the other hand, another thing that undermines marriage is an unloving husband. Look at Proverbs 30 and verse 23. And we've got a little technical note here. The Proverbs just here, this series of four things that make the earth tremble, that is they make life hard to endure. And the third comes at the beginning of verse 23 and most English translations put it this way, it's an unloved woman who is or gets married. Uh, Not so much contemptible, but unloved. Literally, the word is hated. We're not told why this woman is unloved or hated. Maybe she's done something unpleasant. Maybe she's somehow unattractive. But it doesn't say that. It could be, in fact, that her husband is unwilling to show the proper love his wife needs. And I think that because Jacob's first wife, Leah was described the same way as unloved in Genesis 29 compared to Rachel. Sadly, we know polygamy occurs in some societies which always goes against God's ideal of one man and one woman united exclusively for life. But facing that, Deuteronomy 21 verse 15 says, if a man has two wives and loves one but not the other, then he must never play favourites against the children of the unloved wife. It's just obvious, isn't it? A feeling unloved will be a problem if there's a rival wife or an affair with a mistress or with pornography. But, you know, it can also occur, I think, when a man just finds it easier, it seems, to, to talk to or to hang out with other women rather than his wife. And I think it's the case when a wife feels like the man loves his work 
or sport better than her, when he seems to prefer screen time or shed time. Keith and Sarah Condy run marriage courses. In fact, their new course they've produced will be running here and they give a memory aid for improving emotional connection. K-A-R-T-E, CART. They say, keep the emotional cart full. Uh, And by the way, it was a single person who pointed this out to me who saw that the cart thinking can apply to all relationships. But K is for know. Know each other's words, worlds intimately. Uh, Know what stresses or delights the other person. You, You need to be feeling like that other person is interested in knowing you. A is for admire. Admire the positive qualities in your spouse. What do you like about them? Well, tell them frequently because it makes a big impact. R is for respond. Respond to your spouse's efforts to connect. Um, You know, people make little bids for engagement, to talk, to do something. Well, I know you might be busy or distracted or tired, but respond well and you you start filling up the emotional petrol tank. T is for time. Just take time. You've got to make time to hang out with each other, to catch up, just to share the stuff, the the little things. Karen and I often go better when we schedule date time. And E is for enjoy. You've got to have fun together. Uh, no, No laughter or fun is a bad sign in a marriage. Um, the Condi suggests can take something like five positives to make up for each negative in an emotional bank account. So I just want to say at this point, men, there is a world of difference, isn't there, between doing your duty and loving your wife. Well, the last proverb I've chosen on marriage is chapter 18 and verse 22. He who finds a wife finds what is good and receives favour from the Lord. Uh, Chapter 19 verse 14 says, You can inherit a house or wealth from your parents, but a prudent or sensible wife is from the Lord again. A good marriage is one sign of God's grace to us. It's not good for a man to be alone. And the gift of marriage is one way God helps us with that. But Proverbs 18 verse 22 also puts human effort into the mix. It says you find a wife, which does imply some effort in in looking. In fact, Proverbs spends so much time on what qualities go into making a wise son and therefore a good potential husband and a fair bit of time on what that wise man should look for in a lifetime partner. Supremely, we see it in the poem of praise to the noble wife from Proverbs 31 in whom, verse 11, a man can have full confidence who, verse 26, speaks with wisdom and so on. It implies real care in choosing a marriage partner but ultimately it's still all God's grace because we know people can enter a marriage with goodwill and great care and and still get into all sorts of trouble. In fact, we can damage our relationships by our own carelessness or selfishness or or straight-out disloyalty. And that's why we must underline the grace of God. In fact, that really applies 
to all our relationships and not just marriage. There's an interesting parallel between 18.22 and Proverbs 8.35. You might just watch verse 18.22 as I read 8.35. Um, Chapter 8 is all about seeking God's wisdom like she's a wonderful woman. So 8.35 reads, For those who find me find life and receive favour from the Lord. Exact parallel. The same grace that can give us a spouse also offers something even better, God's own wisdom. And the New Testament reminds us that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. Indeed, it says Christ Jesus has become for us wisdom from God That is our righteousness, holiness and redemption. Knowing Christ's redeeming covenant love gives us resources of wisdom for our relationships. In fact, the Old Testament pictures God's love for his people as a faithful groom loving a wife even when she's unfaithful. And the New Testament says oneness in marriage is a symbol of Christ's in the church and so pictures husbands loving their wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her and so as we conclude this thinking about relationships I put it like the apostle does in 1 John 4 this is love not that we loved God but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins we love because he first loved us.